P. Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at wvew.org. And you're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We are streaming at noon every Sunday. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. And just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the host and guests, not of the radio station. So welcome everyone to Indigo Radio. Um, I am Anna Milani, and I'm a youth educator and advocate at the Women's Freedom Center, which is the local domestic and sexual violence organization in Brattleboro. I'm also a, an instructor at um, the community college in Bennington, Vermont, teaching race, class, and gender. And I'm here with my co-host, Marisa. Hi, Anna. I'm Marisa Nielsen. I teach fourth grade at Vernon Elementary School. And Marisa, I know you're sitting across from me, but I'm also going to give you a shout out because you're also doing the board. Thank you. And also hosting the show. Thank you. <laughs> Multi-talented. <laughs> we also have um, Marisa's parents in the room, Jeff and Janice, and also Chris Levensey, who is also a part of Indigo Radio. So welcome to the show. Today, we're going to take a look at the subordination of and violence against women as a tool of political and economic oppression in our country. We're going to spend most of the hour with Miriam Kaba. She's a longtime organizer, educator, and curator. She's going to be calling in from New York City, where she's doing work with Columbia University. Miriam has been active in the anti-violence against women and girls movement since 1989. Her work with a number of things she does focuses on working against the criminalization of women, and youth, racial and gender justice, transformative justice, and she is a voice for prison abolition. Um, but before we go to Miriam, Anna, you have a local lens on specifically the issue of violence against women. What would you say are the struggles that you see in Brattleboro? Yeah, I have, um, I've been at the Women's Freedom Center in Brattleboro for over five years. And the Women's Freedom Center has been in Brattleboro for over 40 years, uh, working on this issue of domestic and sexual violence. And the main struggles I see in the, the direct crisis work is that a majority of women that call us are poor and working class. So on, on top of the abuse that they are experiencing, they also are very likely losing housing or they have no place to go um, or they're under much financial stress. I also just want to add in here that we know in this work that poor and working class survivors are more likely to reach out to social services, but abuse is definitely experienced across class. And often also what I see is that there, there are many uh, co-occurring issues. So for instance, someone struggling um, with abuse may also be struggling with debilitating depression or anxiety. We also see a lot of women struggling with addiction, which you know, if you sit and trace back that addiction, it's often really linked to the violence that they haven't endured. Uh, I also see a lot of women with long history of housing instability. And, and of course, there can be a combination of all of that. So, and also the other thing um, is women, they've also often have lost their children to the state, which is often linked to the violence. Um, and they're really struggling with the deep trauma of losing their kids or trying to fight back to get those kids. I would say overall, though, the, that lack of housing is huge. And we know, too, that women who are experiencing homelessness are more vulnerable to violence um, or may return to an abusive situation. 
And Anna, you also work with youth. Um, what stands out to you most in the education work that you do with youth? Yeah, I have a pretty unique job in that um, I do sort of half-time the direct service, and then I'm also the youth educator within the Wyndham County Schools. And we also have an office in Springfield, so we serve Southern Windsor, too. I'm mostly with middle and high school students uh, of all genders, and schools will often have me come in and do sort of a one-time workshop, um, mostly in health classes. Some schools have uh, the capacity to bring me in for a six-week class that's on gender and violence. And I see a lot of uh, what I call gender bullying or um, sort of straight out sexism and harassment. And I actually really hate the term bullying. I feel like it's this glossy term that we might as well just call it what it is, which is pretty much uh, harassment, sexual harassment, sexism, racism, racism, homophobia. Um, And I see a lot of kids you know, what they're struggling with the school is looking at issues of sexual objectification, the normalizing of sexual violence uh, within the media, how they speak to each other, thinking about not really understanding consent or boundaries. Um, and I also do a lot of work on the college level around what's known as rape culture. And that term is a, a way to describe the normalization of violence and the dehumanizing of pretty much anything or anyone that is feminine. So, Anna, that being said, where do you think we stand in the U.S. today? Well, we, you know, are at an interesting point in history. Um, In regards to specifically around women, uh, President-elect Trump, it's pretty apparent through his campaign and really his life that he feels sexual assault and degrading women is okay. Um, even something that is funny or, or bragging about it. And we saw that in those videos that came to light. There are also are at least 13 women that have accused Trump of anything from ranging um, for inappropriate kissing or harassment or to rape. So basically, we have just elected a, a rapist, among many other things that Trump is. Um, so really, it's a continuation of condoning sexual assault and the objectification of women I'll also add that I think it's important that this is not new. So regardless of Trump, sexual assault, domestic violence, dehumanization of the feminine is rampant and has been for a long time. Uh, And when I think about this sort of stuff, because I've been in a lot of conversations around this since the election, I think about rape culture and and what I do with students, that it's, it's not only having people understand what it means and how it sort of manifests in their lives and behavior, but... It's thinking about the conditions, the social and political structures that give rise to this behavior. So, of course, I want to teach youth to stop calling each other derogatory and sexist names, or we need to stop uh, sexual assault on a college campus. We need to learn new ways about talking about consent and how we understand bystander intervention. But all that is is about behavior, and I feel like we need to push further than that. And so I think thinking on, on that, it's important to think about, regardless of Trump's behavior and sexism, which sort of makes it open season on women and other minorities, I think when it comes to the topic on hand today, violence against women and social economic subordination, would it have also continued under a Clinton presidency? And I think it's an important question as this goes beyond any one particular administration. What do you think, Marisa? Um, I, I would agree, Anna. I think that we can look at Clinton's past policies to help us answer that question. Um, At the national level, Clinton spearheaded her husband's war on the poor. 
um, which directly affected thousands of women and children. Her support of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act put people of color in prison at highly disproportionate rates. Um, She's also a proponent of hydrofracking, which has caused water contamination and air pollution and exposure to chemicals, which directly affects women. Um, And she's a supporter of big banks and corporations, which pushes more people into poverty. Um, And then on an international frame, Clinton has advocated for more wars and drone strikes, um, which hurt women and children the most. She has pushed for sanctions that have only benefited the wealthy. Um, She supported NAFTA, which has lost millions of small farmers their livelihoods, um, including women and children. Um, And at the same time, I do think that we have to remember that Clinton and Trump are part of a system, capitalism, that necessitates the subordination of women. Um, So if we understand that women are subordinated because of the system, we also must know that Clinton would not be some sort of savior for women's liberation. Um, But regardless of this, it was Trump who won, and his most recent appointments to his cabinet have shown that his policies will have an immediate effect on all women's liberty, both nationally and internationally. Yeah, actually... Also on that last note, I was looking last night and reading about Trump's pick for Secretary of Labor, Andrew Pudzer, uh, who is a fast food CEO, and he has been accused multiple times of abusing his former wife. One of the incidents actually included him choking her and throwing her against the wall. Uh, And I was talking to my sister last night. Uh, We were having a sad session over Messenger about Trump, and she was saying that actually the last four appointments... Um, those men have been accused of abusing women in some sort of way. Mm. Um, But I think your point about Clinton, and just to go back to that, it's really to illustrate a a point I think is really important, is that a lot of the examples you share is really looks at the insular nature, I think, of mainstream thinking, that we're not thinking about the impact when when we were talking about Clinton, about her policies on the rest of the world, so I saw that a lot in my conversations about her when the campaign was going on um, and that the policy effects on the ground and what comes to mind for me is Gaza or Syria. So many of those refugees are women and children. And then also in this country, I, w- I was looking back at the um, debates and poor people, poverty was never mentioned in any of the three debates by either of those, of Trump or Clinton. And 43 to 45 million people in the U.S. are under the poverty line and one in five children. So I think that we really need to caution against just thinking in a way that solely asks the question of how I will be affected uh, because the decisions of our government they make, they really have disastrous effects on women and children worldwide, so both across the world and in the U.S. And I think that's regardless of Trump or Clinton. Um, and as you said, it's important to note that Trump and his team that he gathers around him will have an immediate effect on some women's lives. Um, so I think it's important to hold sort of both of those and to think through that. But we are going to take uh, a quick song break. We're going to continue our um, conversation on violence against women and subordination. When we come back, we're going to be joined by our guest, longtime organizer and educator Miriam Kaba from New York City, who spent much of her life working on the issues of violence against women.
Yesterday I saw you standing there With your hand against the pane Looking out the window At the rain And I wanted to tell you All your tears were Patti Smith with Peaceable Kingdom, singing at the 20th anniversary party for Democracy Now! She wrote the song for Rachel Corey, who was a peace activist who was 23 years old when she was crushed by a bulldozer on the Gaza Strip. Last week when Patti sang, she also dedicated the song to all the young people across the world who have lost their lives in struggle and to the victims of the Oakland Fire, many of them young artists. This is Indigo Radio, on air Sundays from noon to one, streaming online at wvew.org. Our topic today is the subordination of and violence against women as they relate to our current system of capitalism. And we'll go to another song, Irma Thomas, It's Raining, before we're joined by Miriam Kaba. Um, and we'll see you shortly. Thanks for listening. It's so hard. Look like it's gonna rain all night. Time. I'd love to be holding you tight But I guess I'll have to accept The fact that you're not here I wish the night would hurry up And end my dear It's raining so hard It's really coming down Sitting on my window in the rain Hurry up! 
Thomas with It's Raining, and this is Indigo Radio, Deepening Understanding, Making Connections. I'm Marisa Nielsen, and I'm here with Anna Mullaney in the studio, and we have Miriam Kaba on the line from New York. Miriam, are you here? I am. Thanks. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so, Miriam, we've been talking about the effects of a Clinton versus Trump presidency. And so first, we wanted to ask what your thoughts are on that as they relate to women's issues. Um, sure. I think that, um, you know, I think it's complicated. Um, I think it's a question of which women. And I think maybe we um, should do more thinking and more consideration of kind of the differences between women. Um, I think this election really points to that in many ways, right? We saw uh, black women, you know, Latinas, um, younger women of all different races come out in support of Clinton to the extent that those, you know, people actually voted. Um, And then we had a whole bunch of white women vote for Trump. So, you know, what their interests are um, might be very specific to kind of their social class, their social location, and less to their gender, but they're still women. Um, and so I think, for me, it's it's a complicated thing, and I think probably what one of the fatal flaws of this whole entire election season was a failure to interrogate, like, really the differences between women and how that would play itself out in the actual election process. Um, Women just got lumped together, and the expectation was that everybody would, all these women were going to vote for Clinton because supposedly, you know, she would be the first woman president, and that would galvanize women in a way that never had been before, and that kind of ignored all history. Um, so I don't want to. I don't want to be caught in the same kind of position. I know that I care as a as a woman. I care about issues of reproductive justice, um, and I'm concerned about what that's gonna what's gonna happen around those issues. But I've been concerned about what's been happening and eroding in, around those issues for years. Um, you know, Democrats were supportive of the Hyde Amendment. Um, they have been quote unquote talking in euphemisms instead of just demanding free abortion on demand for anybody who wants it or needs it. And we shouldn't be moralizing. We should allow people real choice over their bodily, their their autonomy of their body and the choices of whether or not they're going to raise children. Um, that should not be up to the government um, and the state. So I think that... So I've been thinking a lot right now for myself about all of these different kinds of issues that are coming forward and how those are going to impact various types of women. I'm thinking about, you know, the coming attack 
or continued attack on health care in terms of Medicare and wanting to vulturize and cut that, that's going to have enormous impacts on various kinds of women um, because women live longer than men and they often have less money. And so they need these uh, kind of safety nets in order to be able to live halfway decent, dignified lives in their older age. Um, it's just the, the, the list of issues that we need to be concerned about is huge, issues of war um, and potentially, you know, inciting war with Iran or other places. That's going to be a, a real issue that feminists ought to be thinking about um, and have really not been around imperialism of the U.S. In, uh, US interest around the country. That's been almost non-existent in any conversations uh, that, you know, traditional mainstream feminism has had. So those are the things I'm thinking about. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, connected a little bit, we wanted to read a quote from Angela Davis's book, Women, Race, and Class, and um, hear your thoughts. The quote is, given the complexity of the social context of rape today, any attempt to treat it as an isolated phenomenon is bound to founder. An effective strategy against rape must aim for more than the eradication of rape, even of sexism alone. The struggle against racism must be an ongoing theme of the anti-rape movement, which must not only defend women of color, but the many victims of the racist manipulation of the rape charge as well. The crisis dimensions of sexual violence constitute one of the facets of a deep and ongoing crisis of capitalism. As the violent face, the face of sexism, the threat of rape will continue to exist as long as the overall oppression of women remains an essential crutch for capitalism. The anti-rape movement and its important current activities, ranging from emotional and legal aid to self-defense and educational campaigns, must be situated in a strategic context which envisages the ultimate defeat of monopoly capitalism. And Miriam, we wanted to ask you what you thought Angela Davis meant when she said, quote, the overall oppression of women remains an essential crutch for capitalism. Um, well, you know, I think that, well, I think two things. Um, first, I think we have to be clear that um, sexual violence obviously predates capitalism. Um, and that that has to also be, that we have to understand that. And so while it's important to think about the ways in which um, women, um, gender nonconforming people, and others are specifically implicated and oppressed by capitalism, I think we can't forget, again, that, you know, sexual violence predates capitalism. And so there's something there that we have to account for and wrestle with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I'm rereading um, Sylvia Federici's um, Taliban and the witch, um, which I think everybody who's interested in ideas about capitalism and feminism should read if you haven't had a chance to. Um, and I think she's helpful in a lot of ways because she kind of argues that, um, says that, you know, capitalism really reproduces itself and sustains itself through this kind of permanent, pr- primitive accumulation, um, which is involves kind of like oppressing millions of people from their actual means of, of surviving. Um, and it, did, it didn't just happen a long time ago. It's like a consistent, constant process. And so if you think about capitalism and its kind of churning of people and its, um, you know, uh, 
the brutal violence and the disciplining of people, of capitalism, it makes sense to think about how, you know, to understand what uh, Davis is saying when she's saying that, all, you know, when you, when you oppress a particular class of people, in this case, if we look at women's oppression, it, it, it is actually necessary to oppress women under a capitalist state. It is necessary to have a subservient class of people that you exploit in order to be able, in order for capitalism to actually work. And in this case, women are exploited through uh, using domestic labor that is uncompensated, emotional labor that is uncompensated, um, you know, low-wage jobs that uh, can't sustain an entire family, um, that have, you know, women having to make horrible choices uh, about how they're going to live. Uh, women are getting paid less within the capitalist system and model. Um, there's all sorts of ways that uh, capitalism works on the exploitation of particular classes of people, particular groups of people, women being among those groups that are uh, particularly targeted by capitalism um, in order for capitalism to actually continue to sustain itself and exist. So I, that's how I see those things uh, coming through in the Davis's, you know, in Davis's assessment. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Miriam. Um, Miriam, we have to go to a quick song break, and we hope you'll stay with us because we have some more questions for you about the work that you do. Um, we're going to go to Nina Simone, I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free, and we'll be back in about two minutes. So please stay with us, and thank you very much, uh, Miriam, for being with us today. Sure. Thanks. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free I wish I could break all the chains holding me I wish I could say all the things that I should say Say them loud, say them clear for the whole round I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars that keep us apart I wish you could know what it means to be me Then you'd see and agree that every man should be Like I'm long 
it's Nina Simone. I wish I knew how. And you are listening to Indigo Radio. If you are just joining us here at Indigo Radio, we are here with Marianne Kaba in New York City on the line, a longtime organizer, educator, and curator. And we're discussing the history of subordination and violence against women in the U.S. as a way to understand the current political climate in which we live. Miriam, I know you do a lot of work around the mass criminalization of women and women that are incarcerated due to self-defense. Can you talk about how your work relates to the link between the subordination of women and the mechanisms of capitalism and maybe um, some of the projects that you're working on right now? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, uh, if you look at the process of criminalization, it uh, kind of lays there a lot of the tenants uh, that are part of capitalist, you know, exploitation and capitalism as a whole, um, you know, the way that certain populations are targeted by the state as redundant populations, populations that are uh, kind of not needed within the economy um, and kind of thrown into that state, the system of criminalization, the criminal punishment system as a way to kind of disappear um, those people um, from our from our country and from our nation as a whole. Um, so you can see the process of kind of moving people out of quote access to legitimate ways to make a living and forcing them into places where they have to figure out how to make a living uh, in quote unquote in the underground economy, which is criminalized, which ends up putting them within a system that is meant to actually brutalize them um, and meant to actually be uh, a form of, you know, a form of captivity that takes them out of our, out of circulation. Um, and there are certain groups that are despised and then therefore more prone to being criminalized. So for me, uh, a lot of the conversation around the criminal punishment system revolves around men. Um, because men are, in terms of aggregate number and percentage, the greater number of people who end up in the system. But if you don't pay attention to gender uh, as it relates to criminalization, you lose a lot, um, because the prison itself is a gendering mechanism, uh, it, you know, the forced binary of having men and women prisons, uh, the ways in which gender nonconforming people are made to, quote, conform to the gender binary in a violent way through the criminal punishment system is mirrored in how we work in society in general. Um, so you have to think about that. You also have to think about, uh, particularly as I work on a lot of issues around women in prison, you have to think about the specific ways that women are harmed and targeted within the system that's different from the ways in which men are particularly targeted and violated within the system. Um, so my work for a long time has been to support survivors of violence who use violence um, either as self-defense or for survival um, and to raise up uh, basically the plight of these uh, women and gender nonconforming people in some cases uh, who are locked up and who need uh, attention on their cases in order for people to help to free them from prison or help prevent them from getting into the system in the first place. Um, I'm currently... One of the campaigns I'm working with is a campaign called Free Brisha, um, which focuses on a young woman, a uh, girl, who at 14 years old this summer killed her very, very abusive father 
um, a man who, for years, had threatened to kill the entire family. Um, Brisha shot him and was arrested on July 28th of this year, and she remains in prison, uh, in jail, sorry, um, a juvenile jail uh, in Trumbull County. Uh, she's originally from Warren, Ohio, um, and we're currently, through the Free Brisha campaign, pushing people to support um to understand her story, uh, we have a petition, a GoFundMe uh, page. We have a website, freebrisha.com, or on Twitter. We'll be sharing information about uh, Brisha and how ways that people can support her and her family. Um, and we want to kind of, we're not just thinking about Brisha. We're, any campaign that I've worked on that has been a defense campaign for a particular survivor is always part of a larger story of the ways that black women in particular over the years have been criminalized and then have been, when they fight back against violence that's directed at them in any way, whether it's structural violence or interpersonal violence, they're basically told that they have no selves worth of defending and criminalized and pushed into the system. So a lot of my concerns are around that, and I've been working on this No Self to Defend project for the last few years, which is a, a both a, a curated uh, kind of exhibition um, around like the history of the criminalization of survivors of violence that's both online and offline, um, and then we'll grow in the next few years to uh, include some other kinds of tools and resources that people can access. That's great. Yeah, I've been following that Free Brescia, um, and I saw that on December 10th that she wouldn't be tried as an adult. Um, right. Won't face a life sentence, right? But mm-hmm. I agreed. I mean, she shouldn't. She's only 15. And what you were talking about makes me think uh, some of the work that I do here in Brattleboro. Um, we see majority of, uh, I would say, poor white women. And a lot of the – I've taught a group um, – in an alternative to incarceration program. And I think Mm -hmm. about those women, and it was something actually you said in a panel that I was listening to, you said the abuse to prison pipeline. And that really plays true for Brescia and also with these women that I work with that they are in, in, they're incarcerated or they're in, you know, quote unquote, alternative to incarceration. They've had a lifetime of abuse Um, in different ways, right? Whether it's childhood abuse or they've been with an abusive partner, there's often also issues of addiction and then they're incarcerated. And I see so many stories like that. Um, Absolutely. Uh, For people who are interested, actually, in kind of understanding more about this abuse to uh, prison pipeline, you can, uh, a great book uh, by uh, Susan Sterrett and Maureen Hawk, Norton Hawk, uh, is called Can't Catch a Break. Um, gender, jail, drugs, and the limits of personal responsibility. I cannot, um, you know, I can't recommend that book any more highly for people who want to do more, under, like, who want to do more of their personal reading um, and understanding about this. Lynn Haney's book is also very useful uh, along the same lines. I think it's called Offending Women. Um, and it just really shows that absolutely, uh, we cannot underestimate the fact that almost 90% of women in state and federal prisons say that they were victims of abuse prior to their incarceration. So they were either, as you said, victimized by partners, victimized as children, uh, girls in the criminal, uh, in the in family, in juvenile detention. Eighty-four percent of those girls are from families, uh, histories of family violence. You know, we can't, 
we're not going to address the criminalization of women and girls in the system without addressing their previous victimization, you know? Um, That is a pathway that leads them into that system. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and and it's still along the same lines, from your panel, you were in a panel at UMass Amherst this fall, and one of the things you said was that feminists should not be partnering with the state. And can you... Can you talk more about this and what you mean by this? And also maybe explain to um, our listeners out there what carceral feminism means. Sure, sure. So I, I should have I didn't I you know, when you're on these panels and you're talking, you're not able to necessarily expound you know, expound as much as you want. It's much more complicated than don't partner with the state because that's yeah. the state is not a monolith and uh, you know, there's lots of things. I should have been more clear that I meant don't partner with law enforcement. Um, as a gateway and an arm of the state. Um, because I have to say that it's hard for me to still under, like, how are we, it's hard for me to think about how we would fully operate outside the reach of the state until and unless we get rid of the state altogether. And I'm not yet sure how we would, uh, fund things that are very much needed by all of us, like, you know, roads and um, public schools, et cetera, et cetera. I think we could figure out other formations um, to try to do that. But, you know, for now, that's not happening. So people are going to have to interface with the state because the state basically uh, is the the organized uh, space uh, that, you know, usually led by a government that has the power to do all sorts of things like collect taxes and to offer services for all of us in terms of the collective, um, also run all of these kind of punishing things. So, so I, I want to just be clear that I was mainly thinking of like how feminists collaborate with law enforcement in all of its different forms and that, that, that should be off limits basically, um, if you consider yourself a feminist and, that leads to this concept of carceral feminism, which basically is a feminism that sees um, policing, prisons, and surveillance as legitimate tools for, quote-unquote, ending interpersonal forms of violence, um, without a lot of consideration of the fact that those very institutions themselves are actually inherently violent. Um, you know, that prisons themselves, Dean Spade has said that the the prison is the serial rapist mm-hmm. itself, right? The prison is the mass murderer itself, like, and that if you consider yourself somebody who does anti-violence work to collude and collaborate with those very systems that are actually death-making systems is anathema, like, it is actually a contradiction that you cannot you know, the police who are inherently violent are not going to end rape, right? The police themselves are high-level rapists on a regular basis, and we've seen that with the studies that were put out a few months ago by the AP that looked at the long list of police 
uh, officers who've been accused of rape with no consequences, with been able to rape with impunity, right? Um, we saw that with Daniel Holtzclaw in Oklahoma, who raped all those women, so many of whom were sex workers or addicted to various substances, and he just took their vulnerability and used it against them and assaulted them um, for years. So, so that's part of the thought around cultural feminism that that you know that you cannot rely on these very in these very punishing institutions to actually end violence, that they themselves cause violence. And we can't then figure out how to, like, you can't, you know, you can't be liberatory with systems that are actually death-making. Yeah, thank you for that, Miriam. I think that also um, I agree with you on all that. And, And as someone who works at a crisis center, it's something I really see and struggle with because, as you say, um, these systems are inherently violent and I see that all the time. And it's, it's so hard to know what to do around certain things, I think, because here's the thing. It's like someone's fighting or there's someone's in real danger. The go-to is to call the police. Um, And yes. And I understand that actually. Like I'm, I, I always think, you know, my, my, I always tell people like, if you're in danger, you feel yourself in danger. Like you do what you think is best. Right. And there's no shaming people for turning to the systems we actually have. Mm-hmm. Like, the 911 is the system that will, for most people, ensure some sort of response at some point from someone, right? Right. Um, and so that until we figure out something else, alternatives that work in communities, community-based projects that people feel a lot of confidence in, I'm not going to be telling anyone, uh, you know, what they should or should not do if they feel like they're in danger. I think the conversations we ought to have, and I think they're happening in different pockets around the country, is what do we want in terms of community safety? What does that really look like for us? What's the infrastructure we have to build uh, that we might build outside of the police, you know, to actually address uh, forms of harm that occur on a daily basis in our community. I just spent two days uh, back in Chicago last weekend uh, doing a set of doing training for over forty people um, around how we create community accountability processes around sexual violence and harms in our community. How do we actually develop those within our organizations so that people have a place to actually turn? Because you know, I came. To this work as someone who worked around domestic violence and sexual violence. Like, that's how I became an abolitionist. Um, because I care as myself, having been uh, a survivor of violence, I very much want survivors of violence to get our needs met. And this current system is not doing it. Right. So, like, I come out of it from that perspective. I, you know, I'm not trying to quote unquote uh, coddle abusers or the things that are thrown our way when we talk about community accountability. In fact, I'm asking, where's the survivor in the current system? It's, you know, when you go to court, it's the state versus that person who supposedly caused the harm. You are not in the picture as a survivor. You can offer, like, I want this, and the state can decide to do what it wants. It is not they don't have to follow what your desires or needs are. So, yeah, so I feel like that's really important for people to understand. It's like, if you're happy with how things are going right now, then what I'm talking about does not apply to you. Like, 
So you know what I mean? Like, great. I just know a hell of a lot of people who are very unhappy with what we currently have going, you know? Right. Um, and also don't happen to think that we're housing over 2.4 million people in various places, including in immigration detention centers, which are just jails. Um, you know, that people, a lot of people feel like that is an atrocity, so we got to figure something else out. Yeah, exactly. Those are great questions you're putting out there. Um, we're going to go quick to a song break, Miriam. If we could just have you stay on the line, if that's okay, and we'll um, come back to close it out with you. Um, sure. We'll be right back. Thank you. The View is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Okay, we are back, Indigo Radio. We have Miriam Kaba here. Sorry, we skipped the song because we want to get as much as we can from Miriam. Miriam, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, as we sort of wrap up, um, and I think you kind of answered some of that in, in those questions you were putting out there about where do we go from here. I'm curious mm-hmm. about your thoughts on the Women's March in Washington. And, you know, there's been some controversy about inclusivity. Um, and I know they do now have a, a location. Um, one uh-huh. of the things that I find really interesting in the articles I read is as far as I can tell, inclusivity is, is about racial inclusivity. Um, uh-huh. but I don't also see anything talked about class, um, and uh-huh. poor women. So I, I think that's something I think about, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, um, you won't be surprised to know that I, I have many like I have conflicting thoughts about <laughs> yeah. that. I think like most people would because I've always been a person who doesn't think everything needs to include everyone all the time. Like you know, and yet I'm also of the mind that you try to make your spaces as welcoming and as ex- you know inclusive of absolutely everyone that you can. Um, so I don't know if those are contradictory thoughts at all. I think. I just think, um, you know, I'm always glad when people mobilize uh, their own folks and invite them to come and join in struggle with other people, you know, with the, with each other. Um, so I don't have to be invited to everything. I guess that's how I feel about, about life. And I know I'm going to be left out of certain formations, and that's... Usually, I don't mind that. I think it's a different thing if you're positioning your your event as all-inclusive. I think that's probably where this march got in trouble off the bat, is like, we want all women to show up from all, you know, and yet... They don't have the mech. They didn't have the mechanisms early on to understand that, like using a a, a title uh, from a march that had been organized by black women many you know years before would be problematic. You know what I mean? Like they hadn't done the work. They don't didn't know the history, which is so difficult, right? um, For folks, 
but I want to I want to hold the organizers and the people who try to bring this together. I want to hold them with I want to have some generosity towards them. And the reason I feel that way is because I know myself as an organizer, like I can't think of everything. I make mistakes all the time. And I know that's terrible, but that's being human. Um, and we should learn from those mistakes and we should grow from them and we shouldn't keep making the same mistake over and over again, just different ones over again, you know. Right. Um, but I just want to hold them in their humanity and, uh, you know, thank the people who initially tried to get off the ground for actually trying to do something in this moment, which yeah. is more than I can say from a lot of people's perspectives who are either paralyzed because they don't know what to do or just used to yelling at everybody else and never doing anything themselves. That is also a contingent, and we have to be, like, fair about that. There are people whose job it is to simply shit on other people, whoever they are, for whatever they do. So I think we have to, uh, we just have to, like, delineate what what are the valid critiques and the valid criticisms and take those to heart and really try to shift and change and adapt. Um, And then what is the bullshit you really should just leave behind because it doesn't actually belong to you. It belongs to the person who's launching the charge, right? Yeah. Uh, they have work to do, and you're not going to do their work for them. So we just it's like always that kind of struggle of trying to balance it out. For my part, I, you know, I can't, um, I'm, you know, I've been dealing with some health issues and other things. I'm not going to be able to go to uh, D.C., but you know, if there's something that's happening near me here in New York, I'll I'll attend um, and I'll support and I will, you know, stand in solidarity with um, and you know, or be in solidarity with, which is better and less ableist. But you know, I just think that, um, yeah, I, I think about that a lot, and I just I just wish people would be more generous with other people and recognize how friggin' hard it is. How difficult we have it. How many people are struggling all over the time, you know, all over the place all the time. Um, and just be kinder to other people. Like, it doesn't take a lot. Um, yeah. And you yeah. don't have to launch mass, you know, mass mobilization, mass, like, counter mobilizations against absolutely everything, especially people who really are well intentioned and p- could probably be moved with just two phone calls, which it right. sounds like some of these people were yeah. and have, like, really rushed to try to fix a lot of problems yeah. that existed first on. Like, we got to acknowledge that, too. Right. Thank you for your thoughts on that. Um, sure. And Miriam, we want to thank you so much for being with us today. I wish that we had a whole nother hour with you. Um, <laughs> but thank you for no the problem. work that you do. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And we will definitely, yeah. um, we're going to link to that free Brescia website on our Facebook page for our listeners. Great. Um, and Great. also to your um, website too. And, and thank you for those book recommendations too. Um, of course, of thank course. You so also, much. people can um, go to No Self to Defend also. No Self to uh, Defend? Site. Yeah, okay. that they can connect with. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Miriam. Great. No problem. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. That was Miriam Kaba, longtime organizer, educator, and curator, um, who has been active with the Anti-Violence Against Women and Girls movement since 1989, um, speaking with Anna Mullaney from the Women's Freedom Center. We're going to take a short break and listen to a song by Ana Tiju called Todo Lo Solido, which translates, well, Todo Lo Solido 
and then there's more in Spanish that I'm not going to say because I don't know how to pronounce it, but it translates to all that is solid melts into air, and it refers to the fragility of social and economic relations in a capitalist society. The lyrics ask, what would the world look like if there was no capital, if humans had no masters? And we'll be back after that. Thanks so much. ¿Cómo sería este mundo sin capital? Donde la humanidad fuera fundamental Donde todos fuéramos iguales, universal Sin patrones, ni amos, ni el nuevo orden mundial ¿Cómo sería este mundo sin capital? Donde la vida fuera lo más elemental Sin patrones, ni amos, ni tu nuevo orden mundial Y sin tu fuerza policial En un solo instante Todo lo devora Todo se desploma Se cae a pedazos Como el imperio de Roma No hay forma alguna De tener equilibrio Si la balanza ha caído Y nos ha sostenido A quien no trabaja Para la maquinaria Para quien no procede No produce o no paga Pasa en la calle Y pasa en tu casa Sobrepasa todo Pero todo se rebalsa Y Destruye con el miedo a quien se levanta y lo apunta con el dedo Indigo Radio, 
streaming online at wvew.org. My name is Marisa Nielsen, and I'm here with Anna Molini. Um, that was Ana Tiju, Todo lo solido se desvanece, NLR, which means all that is solid melts into air. And there's a great animated music video that goes along with that that we will post on our Facebook page, Indigo Radio. Um, if you missed any of our shows, you can link to them at that Facebook page um, where they're archived. So thanks so much. Um, last, we're just going to play a song, Phil Oaks, Love Me, I'm a Liberal, and that will be the end of today. So thanks so much for joining us. Political opinion. One of the shadiest of these is the liberals. An outspoken group on many subjects. <clears throat> Ten degrees to the left of center in good times. Ten degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. As though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming. He got what he asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Get it? <laughs> I go to civil rights rally and I put down the old DAR. DAR, that's the dykes of the American Revolution. I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. I hope every colored boy becomes a star. But don't talk about revolution. That's going a little bit too far. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal.